morning and welcome to our service. Please take your copies of the scripture and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Please pray for those in our congregation who are ill at this time, Pastor Dixon being one of them. He is at home right now resting. He's not feeling well. So I will be sharing with you from the word this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, and I am well aware that all of us in this room have mothers, and also well aware that there are many in this room who are not mothers. So I want to, first of all, express my gratitude to the Lord for my mother. I texted her this morning and um, just thanked her so much for her ministry in my life and all that she has meant to me and that who I am today is a large part because of her investment in my life. And she texted back this very sweet reply and that her essential her response was that she was glad that, that she could prepare me for the next life because that was her goal. It's not just to be a good upstanding citizen in this life, although that is important, that most importantly that she wanted me and my siblings to love Christ and to be prepared for the world that is to come. So I hope that your mother was the same way. I hope that you, if you are a mother in this room, that is your goal, to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And those of you who are mothers know the sacrifice it takes. Um, you, many of you know the sacrifice and hurt there is, even in being a mother of children that you never met. So I'm well aware that there are people in this room who are mothers, but have never met those young ones, and will one day, I believe, see them in the presence of our Lord. Luke chapter 8 is the text for us this morning. Any Christian mother would know that the most important thing in their life is to train and raise their children to love and know Christ. That's the goal. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at something that is very intriguing in what Christ himself has said regarding his relationship to us as Christians. One of the greatest bonds in a family, of course, is that of a mother and her children. If you are a mother, you know that strong bond, and all of us are children, so we know that bond that we have with our mother and what a privilege it is to be able to um, love and nurture our mothers as we grow older because they took all the time to change our diapers and to <laughs> fix meals and take us to sports and things like that. There's a great bond there that just can't be explained. And I remember even as a father, when I first held my boys, there was just something I couldn't explain, a love that it's hard to describe. And I think that's even amplified when it comes to a mother and her children. She spends a majority of her time raising those children. She has to frequently be the disciplinarian of those children. All of those things lead to a deep bond. In the world in which we live, though, mothers are... Um, Attacked. Let's just put it that way. The, the home, the nucleus of the home where you have a mother with her children and a father with his children, it's being attacked in our society. The home is being destroyed. Alternative lifestyles are being embraced, not just embraced, but I could actually say they're being encouraged in our society. And the children within those homes grow up confused because the way God designed the home to be is one way, and in order to make certain alternative lifestyles work, quote-unquote, you still have to do it God's way. With a husband and a wife joined together in, in marriage. 
It's no surprise then that one of the greatest attacks in our society is not necessarily against the Word of God, although that is true, but it's against the people who are instructed to take the Word of God and to pass it along to the next generation. Mothers and fathers, we have been tasked to transcribe the truth of the Word of God, the message of the gospel, the teachings of Christ to the next generation. And what is our world doing? What is Satan desperately trying to do but to destroy that? But there's also another type of family because the the real family where you have a a mother and a father and they're raising their children together, there's another picture that that is displaying. And it's the picture of the family of Christ. Because we all, as Christians... Yes, have a mother and a father here on earth. Yes, have children or are children, but we also are children of the Heavenly Father, as the song puts it. Jesus is going to take an opportunity in our text today to teach the people he's around something that is very, very important. The text we have before us that we're going to be reading in a moment is Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. But I'm actually going to back up to verse 16, because it's all tied together, really, from verse 4 all the way down through verse 21. But I'm going to start by reading verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 21. We read these words. Jesus says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, cover it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter may see... The light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come. At him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is our privilege this day as we. reflect on the joy of godly mothers to, more importantly, remember the joy of our salvation in Christ and to examine the teachings that he has said are of vital importance. I pray that these few moments we have left digging into your word would be moments well spent, for we are seeking to hear from you. Give us ears to hear, for we ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. Jesus was a prolific teacher, probably the best teacher, and he used stories to get across points. In chapter 8, verse 4, we have probably one of the most famous stories that Jesus gave, which we often refer to as the parable of the sower, but frankly, it's more about the soils than the sower himself. 
And I do want to actually read that parable that he gives. Imagine now, pretend with me, that you have never heard this story before in your life. Imagine that you are a Jewish man or woman or child living 2,000 years ago, hearing that there is this great Jewish rabbi who has taught things in a way that no one has ever heard before. And you go and you see this massive crowd listening to him speak. And he utters these words. You've never heard this story before. He says these words. Verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And with that, Jesus ends his teaching. You're in the crowd. You hear him tell a story, and then he utters this exclamation at the end of the story. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. If you had never heard sermon after sermon on this text... If you had heard this for the first time, Jesus essentially telling a story, what would be going through your mind? I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. I'd have no clue what on earth he was talking about. I wouldn't have any idea. He didn't explain it. He just told a story about this guy who had seeds, and he's scattering it everywhere, and some are falling on rocks, and some are falling in the thorns, and some are falling on the wayside, and some are falling on the dirt that's supposed to be on And he ends the story with this exclamation, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And most of us would think, well, I've got ears. I just heard you speak. What are you talking about? If you were the disciples, you would have uttered what they said in verse 9. They asked him, saying, what might this parable be? At least they had the insight to know Jesus was trying to communicate something. If you were a great crowd, a massive crowd, listening to the teachings of this Jewish rabbi and you heard him utter those words, you might have known there's something he's trying to communicate. I'm not entirely certain what it is, but there's something he's trying to communicate with me. And at least the disciples had the audacity to ask him, what did you mean? I have no clue what any of that means, but clearly you meant something. And Jesus gives this very interesting response in verse 10. He says, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. That's an interesting phrase. It's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This isn't talking about a whodunit mystery, you know, a Poirot or a Sherlock Holmes. This is talking about something that has been hidden before but will be revealed to some. And he tells the disciples, it's given to you. But to others, there are others besides you disciples 
it will not be revealed. You will not get to know and understand the teachings that I've given. In fact, it will be given to you in parables. One of the things Jesus is trying to teach here is that the parables do two things. He wasn't telling stories to entertain the crowds. That's what you see many preachers doing today, trying to tell stories to entertain crowds. He's not doing that. Jesus is a masterful teacher, and he's doing two things simultaneously when he teaches a parable. One, he's revealing something to his people. But simultaneously, at the same time, he is hiding the truth from others. And he quotes a verse from the book of Isaiah that we read in our scripture reading, Isaiah chapter 6. We all like to read the first eight verses of Isaiah 6 because they're inspirational. It's majestic. You read in Isaiah 6 about this vision that Isaiah has of the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe is filling the temple. And we see these angelic creatures crying back to one another, holy, 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 the one attribute of God that is repeated to the third degree. And of course, we like to remind ourselves that the Lord is the one who purges our lips, for that is what the angel does. He purges the lips of Isaiah, for when Isaiah sees the holy God sitting upon his throne, he recognizes that he is but a mere creature. And he says, woe is me. Woe being a pronouncement of judgment. Judgment be upon me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God reaches out and commands his angel to touch Isaiah's lips with a burning coal. And he is told, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And then, of course, the verse we all love to read when we have a missionary coming in or when we're thinking about missions, the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says what every Christian ought to say, here am I, send me. Inspirational, right? But I intentionally read the following two verses in the scripture reading. Because imagine this is your missionary commission. God says, whom will I send? Who will go for us? And you're ready to fight for the side of the angels. And so you say, Lord, send me. He says, all right. Here's your message. Verse 9. Go and tell this people. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Why? Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. What is going on here? God tells Isaiah, you are my servant. You are commissioned to go preach to my people. And Isaiah says, this is fantastic. I have seen the holy God. What is my message? Here's your message. Tell these people to keep on seeing the revelation I've given them. Tell them to keep on listening to my prophets who have proclaimed my word. 
tell them to have their eyes open and their, their, their heart open to my message and continue to not get it. Verse 10 even goes further when he says, make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes. Why? So that they don't get it. Because if you don't do that, they just might hear the message. They just might turn. They just might understand with their heart. They just might convert and they just might be healed. So hide it from them. Don't let them get it. This is a pronouncement of judgment. And those of us in the New Testament 2,000 years later are saying, wait a minute. I thought our message is a message of love and understanding and acceptance. We accept everybody for the way they are and who they are. What is this stuff about, about we can't let people understand? Everybody should be given a chance to embrace and believe. God's economy with his messenger, God, as one theologian I read and heard put it, God plays for keeps. He doesn't mess around. He is not one to be trifled with. That same holy God that Isaiah saw that same holy God who has these angelic creatures crying back and forth to one another, elevating this attribute of who he is that summarizes everything of who he is, are crying, holy, holy, holy. It's almost as if we don't get it. The holiness of God is one of his preeminent attributes so that we think Somehow instead, he is like us, where we see somebody who messes up and we say, well, to err is human, it's normal to mess up, it's okay, it's whatever. But with God, his holiness will not be negotiated. And people who refuse to submit to him will find that he will execute judgment So Jesus quotes this verse, this startling verse, back in Luke 8, when he says, these parables are given to you to know, but to other people it's meant to hide the truth from them, so that seeing they might not see. They see my teaching. They heard the words I said. They heard the story I gave, but they didn't get it. And what's even more startling is none of them asked to find out what it meant. I come back to my illustration of you being one of the the people hearing this for the first time. Would you have been like the crowd? They hear the parable of Jesus and none of them utter a word. They don't say a word. The disciples at least asked him, what do you mean by this? And Jesus tells them there are some people who want to know. And to those people, it will be revealed. But to the others who refuse to hear the message, it becomes not just a hidden truth to them, but a truth that turns into their judgment. For they heard it. He says, seeing 
And hearing, they saw, they heard, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And you know why? Because they didn't want to. The people came to see and be entertained by a a great rabbi teacher. Even later on in Jesus' ministry, Herod, when he is being judged, when Jesus is being judged by Herod, Herod is excited because he wants to see Jesus do some kind of miracle. He's not getting it. He didn't listen to the teachings of Jesus saying that he must go into Jerusalem and that he must be persecuted and maligned and slandered and attacked by the Pharisees, the ruling religious class, and that he must be beaten and that he must be crucified and killed and three days later rise again. Herod didn't care about any of that. Herod just wanted to be entertained. Joker, show me another miracle. The people came to see him so that they could be fed, for they had heard that he had fed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. They saw the things Jesus did. They heard the teachings of his mouth, but they didn't get it. And even his disciples who wanted to know sometimes didn't get it. So, for example, Jesus feeds the 5,000, five loaves, two fish, 12 baskets of fragments afterwards. And the disciples marvel. And Jesus says, I'm going to go up into this mountain to pray and you go and you go on to the other side. So these experienced fishermen hop into their ship and start going, or their boat and go to the other side. And in the middle of their, their rowing, transferring across to the other side, this storm raises up so much so that they fear for their lives. And Jesus comes to them walking on water. And on another occasion, Jesus is sleeping in the boat because this happens several times over the course of his ministry with them. He's sleeping in the boat. He's walking on the water. He's doing all of these things. And all of a sudden they say, Master, we're going to die. Save us lest we perish. And Jesus simply utters the words, Peace, be still. And immediately it stops. And the, the scriptures say that the disciples marveled, saying, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then the gospel writer says, for they did not consider the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Even when the disciples desire to know the teachings of Jesus, there are still points in which they don't get why. Why did Jesus teach these things to people? Why did Jesus heal a blind man? Why did Jesus make a guy who had been lame from his birth able to leap up, take up his bed, and walk? Why did Jesus go to Lazarus where he is in the tomb for four days and say, Lazarus, come forth, and a man who had been dead four days comes walking out of the tomb alive. Why did Jesus do all of that? To display to the world who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the promised seed of Genesis 3, verse 15. 
But there are people who didn't get it. And there are people today who will tell you, I will believe if I see a miracle. If I see God do something like he did in the Bible, if I see 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fish, I'll believe if I see some kind of handwriting in the sky. I'll believe if I hear a voice from heaven, I'll believe. But the reality is Jesus was here in his ministry for at least three years, and there were people who heard him teach. There were people who saw him do all of these wonderful miracles, and they still didn't believe which tells you that the problem was not with the teacher. The problem was not because he, gave them, he didn't give them enough evidence about who he was. The problem was deeper. The problem was with their heart, which is why he gave the parable of the soils. Because it's not about the sower. It's about the soil which represents the heart. Because as he goes on to explain In verse 10, verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are they that hear. And then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring forth no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Jesus is talking about the hearts of people. And he says, of these four soils, three of them are people, people who hear the word of God and for one reason or another will not receive it. Their hearts will not receive the truth. They hear it, but they didn't understand. They saw it, but they didn't truly see. And in verses 16 through 18, then, he talks about this light. Because after he says that there is good ground, there is a heart that is willing and receptive to hear the truth of the teachings of Jesus. And it will do something. It not only hears, but it understands. It not only sees, but it embraces. And in verse 16, what does it do with that truth? It doesn't hide it. It doesn't pretend. It's not fake. It's genuine. Nobody's going to take a candle and put a bucket over it. No one's going to take a candle and put it under their bed. Why? Because that's not the purpose or the function of the candle. The purpose and function of the candle is to illuminate. A heart that is truly transformed will manifest itself. It will be obvious. There will be a demonstration of the changed life. So as Jesus then comes to verse 19 and he says, in the middle of teaching and talking about all of this, somebody comes up to him. They say, Master, your mom, your brothers, they're all outside. They can't get in. They can't get into this house. There's so many people here. The crowd is listening to your teachings. They're trying to get in. 
and they can't get in. They, they want to see you. Imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, knowing the origin of her eldest son. That he was not born out of wedlock, as many believed. He was not born of fornication, as even some of the disciples, or excuse me, as some of the Pharisees insinuated about him. He wasn't even born or fathered by Joseph, her husband, who probably at this time was already dead. She knew that this eldest son of hers was the son of God. And that he had to be about his father's business. That's what he told his parents when he was 12 years old. He's in, the, he's in the temple. He's talking with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they are astounded at his knowledge. And his parents had been gone for several days before they realized he wasn't even there. Makes me feel better about being a parent. And they finally go back, and they find him there, and they say, where have you been? Your father and I have been worried sick for you. Imagine the mother's heart aching, wondering where her oldest son is, knowing that, yes, this is the Son of God, but this is still her son, her firstborn son. There is a bond there that she feels. And when they go to the temple and they say, where have you been? We've been looking for you. And Jesus says, what am I to do with you? Don't you know that I'm supposed to be doing my father's business? I think Mary understood what he meant. But nevertheless, she's still a mother. And she probably knows that there are people who are beginning to hate him. There are people who don't want him to teach the things he's teaching. The Pharisees, there's rumors going around in the city. The Pharisees are getting really upset. And so her and, and her sons, his half-brothers, come to him wanting to see him, perhaps to tell him, look, you need to tone it down. We don't want you to get hurt. And the words that Jesus utters may seem, in some ways, heartless, in some ways, unthankful. Because even though in this text in Luke, Luke doesn't record it, in the other two Gospels, in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, those two mention that Jesus says, before he utters the words we have in our verse, Who are my mother and my brothers? Imagine you being a mother coming in, trying to see your son, and the message back that you hear of his response to see you is, who are you? Who's my mother and my brothers? That would seem to be hurtful, and, and yet that's not Jesus' point. Jesus is not is trying to cut his mom. He's not trying to undercut his siblings. He's taking the opportunity to make this a teaching point. And Luke records the second half of what he says. Because after he says, who are my mother and my brothers, he gestures to the entire crowd and he utters the words in verse 21, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. The formula that Jesus gives for those who are truly a part of his family is that they hear and they do. 
If you go back to verse 8, this is what he cries at the end of the parable of the soils. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says this several times. The other Gospels record this same saying. This is a formula Jesus gives. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, what is he talking about? Is he saying, hey, there's some people in this crowd who don't have ears. There's some people in this crowd who are deaf. So those of you who aren't deaf, those of you who aren't missing an ear, listen to what I'm saying. Is that his point? I don't think he's talking about a physical hearing. Because they did. The people in the crowd heard the words that he said. But I think it's two other dimensions. I think there's a spiritual apprehension he's talking about. You hear the words of the parable of the soils. But you need to understand that there is a spiritual meaning behind it. And if you don't apprehend it, then you are one of the people who does not have the ears to hear. And I also think that it's talking about a welcoming disposition. That not only do you perceive that there is a spiritual meaning behind my words, but that you want it. You welcome it. And the disciples displayed that. They didn't just say to themselves, boy, that story Jesus said, I've never heard that before. There must be something behind it, but I don't know what it means. You know what it means? No. All right. Well, I guess we'll just keep going. Let's go to the next town, see what story he'll tell there. They not only understood that there was a spiritual significance, they wanted to know what it was, and they wanted to welcome it. So much so that they did something. They went to Jesus and they asked him, what does this mean? What are you trying to communicate? We want to know. When Jesus says the word hear, he's talking about people who understand the spiritual impact of the truths of his words and they welcome it wholeheartedly. But the second half of this hearing or of this uh, family that, that he's talking about is not just that they hear his words and they understand the spiritual implications and that they welcome it, but that then they go do it. The disciples embraced the words of Jesus. And sometimes they did want to emphasize that they did stuff. Jesus at one point told people, you need to leave everything that you have. There's this rich young ruler comes to him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And that, does, that rich young ruler leaves because he is very rich. He didn't want to do it. And what do the disciples say? Peter gets up, uh, just so you know, just so the record is straight here, that rich young ruler who just went away with his tail between his legs, just so you know, We left everything and followed you. And Jesus takes that opportunity to teach them as well. It's not that the disciples weren't doing, but it has to be accompanied with a spiritual apprehension and a welcoming disposition of the teachings of Jesus. The reality is, there are many people who only do one or the other. James says, Don't be 
hearers only. There are plenty of people, perhaps even in this room, who come to church on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, maybe Wednesday, and they hear the word of God. They hear the truth presented. They hear the truth proclaimed. And then they go home and nothing happens. Nothing changes. There are many of us who have felt this, I have felt this, where you open in your quiet time the word of God and you read it, you heard it, and straightway forgot what you read. You heard it, but it didn't make an impact. In some ways, you maybe even wondered, what does this have to do with me? And we have, I think, the greater shame in our society today for that. Because for about 1,600 years, the church has not had access to the scriptures in the home like we do. The people who wanted to hear the word of God had to go to church to hear it. Because in the society in which they lived for 1,700 years, they just couldn't afford to have copies of the scripture, or there wasn't a plethora of Bibles they had access to, or for a majority of human history, most of the people have been illiterate, so they couldn't read it. Their only hope was to hear it proclaimed at the church on Sunday, or whenever the church met together. And now here we are in the 21st century, we have access not only to one translation of the Word of God, but to a plethora of them. And we don't hear the teachings of Jesus. Or some of us hear the teachings of Jesus, but then we don't do it. We know what's right. Jesus has made it abundantly clear what the truth is. But we're going to do it anyways. I know the Bible says that a man and a woman should be married before they enjoy the physical union that a marriage provides. But you know, that's kind of old-fashioned. It's kind of outdated. I know that the Bible says that God instituted marriage to be a picture of Christ in the church, which really is his bride Jesus' bride, and that when God made them, he made them male and female. But you know what? That's old and outdated. We're in the 21st century. I hear the words that Jesus are saying, but I'm not going to do it. I know that the word says that I should be going and fellowshipping and exhorting with the brethren in the church. But you know what? That's old and outdated. I'm too busy. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves if that is our hearts. Because Jesus says, those who are in my family hear and do. They hear and do. Jesus is not teaching works-based salvation. He's not saying you're justified by going to church, by getting baptized, by reading your Bible. It's not what he's saying. Justification has always and only ever been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a faith that truly works that is true and real, is a faith that will work. It will do. That's James' point. And I think when Jesus says, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it, 
he's also kind of implying something that some of us probably know, and that is that you tend to be and do what your family is and does. So when I go back to northern Minnesota, I tend to somehow revert into a Minnesotan accent when I'm talking with my dad or with other of my family members. I have tendencies, even in my mannerisms, that mimic things that my mom and dad did. And you do the same thing. I remember uh, meeting somebody in our congregation and their parents and just remarkably in my mind thinking, this person is exactly like a carbon copy of their parent. It's like their mannerisms, the way they laugh, everything. It's so interesting. We tend to be and do who our family is. Jesus says, how can you expect to claim to be a part of my family? If you don't hear the words that I say and embrace them, and if you don't go out and do it, you're not of my disciples. There are people who don't hear but attempt to do, and I will close with this. Jesus, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, understands this. There are people who will not hear the words but hopefully assume that their good works, the doing, means that I'm a Christian And he says, listen, verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. There is doing that must happen. But it's not just doing for the sake of hoping you can earn the favor of God. For many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? We did something. And in thy name cast out devils, we did something. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And for those of us on an external level, we might look at that person and we might say, wow, what a servant of God. But the only person they're fooling is their fellow humans. For Jesus says, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Who are you? You're not part of my family. My family doesn't just do. My family welcomes and hears my words. The important thing for us today is to ask ourselves, am I part of Christ's family? And the barometer for it, the test for whether or not you are, is if you welcome and hear with spiritually discerning eyes that have been opened by the work of God's Holy Spirit and then go and live out and do it by the power of God's Holy Spirit, that is when you know you're part of the family of Christ. And if you aren't, then I am begging you. I'm begging you. I really am. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool the people around you. Don't wait. Be a part of the family of Christ now because there are eternal joys at the right hand of God for those who are children of God. And I said that the Matthew passage was my last one and I am going to change my mind. I'm going to say the last one is in Romans 8. Because not only are we blessed with spiritual life in being in the family of God. But there's so much more added to it. In Romans 8, verse 14, 
Paul says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, he will be our inheritance and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. If you are part of God's family, that is greater than any earthly familial connection you could have. As strong as a mother's love is for her children, as strong as a father's love and commitment is to his wife and to his children, the greatest family tie for us as Christians is that of being known and loved by Christ. Father, I pray that this would be the heart's cry of all of your children in this room. To know you by hearing both with spiritual discernment and with a welcoming disposition the teachings you've given. For you have told us by this all men will know that we are disciples. Not only that we love one another as Christians, but that we also keep your commandments. Lord, we also want to do. We want to be obedient children, longing for the day when we will see Christ and enjoy the first fruits of our redemption, enjoy the privileges of your presence once more. I pray on behalf of those who do not hear, who do not see, who do not understand. The problem is not with your message. The problem is with their heart. And I pray, Lord, that in your kindness and in your mercy, just as you have redeemed those of us who have embraced Christ, so would you do that in the hearts of those in this room who have yet to see and do and love the teachings of Christ. We praise you. We magnify and exalt your name. For you are worthy. Amen.